Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Father, and in you we cannot die. Father, we praise your name. We ask that by your spirit you speak to our hearts, take away anything in us that is not of you, so that only what remains is Christ. We ask that for his name, for his sake, his glory. The beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about pluralism versus what real Christianity is. And if you come to our church for a while, you'll hear, hear these three terms. And, and I like to share these terms periodically through the year so that we have an understanding of what we're talking about. Uh, at Rock Point, you've heard our mission to love God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ. And our vision is to receive, to equip, to impact, and to sin. And when it comes to the teaching of the Scripture, when it comes to what our belief system is, uh, you can really kind of narrow everybody, uh, every believer, every Christian, uh, you can kind of narrow it down to three categories. Uh, the first category is taste. And people always have taste about church. The real truth is most people make their decisions based on taste. And what is taste? Taste is simply, what kind of clothes do you wear at your church? What kind of music do you do at your church? Do you have small groups or do you have Sunday school at your church? Those are all issues of taste. How does it feel? What does it look like? What kind of chairs do you have? What does the building look like? Those are all issues of taste. And really, you can't say that one's wrong and another one's right. That's like saying, you know what? Diet Coke is wrong because it tastes bad. And I'm telling you, it's just wrong. It tastes bad and it's wrong. And you might say, I love Diet Coke. And I go, no, it, you don't because it's, it's bad. I don't like the taste of it, so it's bad. So you're wrong for drinking Diet Coke. Now, there might be some other reasons you're wrong for di drinking Diet Coke because chemicals and that thing. But I can't say because of the taste that you're wrong and I'm right. And that's what a lot of people do with church, don't they? A lot of people go, their music over there is just wrong, just wrong. I don't like it. And that's, it's a taste issue. And at some point, we've got to grow up and say, you know what? I don't like drums. Okay, God bless you. That's a taste, okay? Or some people can say, I love drums. Can we have more drums? Can we have more cowbell? That's a taste issue for those of you who just got that, okay? That is totally a taste issue. And then there are what we call teachings. Sometimes we refer to them as doctrine, but teachings. And it's our position on certain scriptural issues. This morning we had baby dedication. And our doctrine, the way that we look at perspective, it's a time of dedication, not baptism. Uh, next week we'll have uh, some more people be baptized right there in this baptism. We practice believer's baptism. And we do it by immersion because the word baptizio means to dip. So that's what we do. And, but some uh, will pour, some will sprinkle, some will do it at birth. And that's a teaching. And we think that it's immersion, but you know what? I'm not going to be arrogant enough to say, everybody that got sprinkled, you're wrong. I'm going to say, my interpretation of Scripture, and the best that we know how, and I paid good money to believe this way as I went to seminary, um, this is what I believe. This is what I understand the text to say. This is what our elder board, this is the interpretation that we have. And we think this is right. 
But we may get to heaven one day, and, and God may say, you know, it, was, it would have really been fine if you had just poured or sprinkled water. And really, I go, okay, God, that's great. I won't be, I won't be completely uh, flabbergasted and go, I can't believe that. Those people are in heaven, okay? And those are teachings, how we do communion and the, the number of times we do communion. Okay, and how, how we go about the process of church leadership. We have an elder board. Some, t- some congregations are ruled by the congregation. They just do a popular vote. Some congregations are led by the demons, I mean the deacons. And so there are <laughs> different ways of doing it, doctrines, okay? And those are important, and you need to have a stance. But they don't mean, because someone disagrees with you, that you're not going to heaven. doesn't mean you're not a Christian, okay? But then there are the tenets. And there are not a lot of tenets. Some people add tenants. There are not a lot of tenants. And what we mean by tenants is we're saying these are the non-negotiables. It's Jesus Christ, and salvation is through him. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which men must be saved. That's in our text today in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Jesus Christ, and that we are saved by grace through faith, that he lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life and then died. But on the third day, he rose again and that he can forgive us of our sins if we receive it by faith, receive salvation by grace. And those are really the basic tenets of the faith. Those are what join us together as believers, and we have to stand strong and firm on those. But taste issues, quite frankly, who cares? I, I, you know, I don't mean to be ugly, but when you, don't, when you just get mad about the music, it's time to go. And crown the place you'd be happy. The thing I find out is people aren't happy when they go to the next place either. So when you're always the common denominator that's not happy, the clue phone's ringing and you need to pick it up. All right? That was free. I wasn't supposed to say that, but let's move on. So, popular myths about Christianity. I hear these, and I've heard these literally. I've heard these in the last 12 months several times. People will share these myths Uh, that they misunderstand Christianity. And today I want to talk to you about real Christianity, the Acts chapter 4 church, as they were experiencing. Number one, one of the myths I think is important for us to understand, and you'll hear this all the time. Just out right outside my office, I was visiting with a guy who was doing some uh, painting, and and, um, he was working, and uh, I shared with him, and uh, we talked about church, and I said, well, why don't you come visit with us? And he told me where he goes. He goes, well, you know, all religions are all the same. We're all trying to do the same thing at the same place. I go, well, actually not. They're not all exactly the same. He goes, really? I said, no. And so I went through the gospel, and then I shared with him a couple of reasons why I don't believe all religions are the same. But a lot of times people will say that. All religions are basically the same. They're all exactly the same. Well, let me help you on that and tell you they're not. Let me just take, for example... Uh, Christianity and Buddhism. Buddhism is the fourth largest religion in the world. So there are a lot of people that are Buddhists. Buddhism and Christianity are almost exact opposites. Buddhists don't believe that there is a God. Okay? There's a force, but they don't believe in a God. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in a heaven or a hell. They don't believe that. They believe that you want to get to the state of nirvana where you're basically beingless. And the way that you get there is an eightfold path that you walk through. They believe that you work it off in karma and that it has nothing to do with a deity because they don't believe that a deity exists. Well, you're talking about tenets of Christianity. You're seeing the opposite. 
So they can't be the same. If Buddhism doesn't even believe there's an afterlife, that you just come to a state of beingless, you come to a state of, of nirvana, that there is no heaven, there is no je- hell, that there is no judgment, there is no God, how can that be the same? If that's your purpose, and those are diametrically opposite of each other, how can you say that they're all the same? Islam believes Allah is God, but they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, much less is He God in the flesh. They don't believe the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, here's the interesting thing, that if you look at Buddhism, if you look at Islam, you look at uh, uh, Christianity, they all have uh, a different belief system. So they're not the same, okay? And I think we have these wrong on the, on the deal, but number two, I just have three points here I want to make, three myths I, I want to I give you here. Number two, Christianity should be and is privately subjective. Christianity uh, is, should be and is privately subjective. So let's erase number two, okay? I just went ahead and and put it with number one. So I apologize, we miscommunicated here today. Christianity should be and is privately subjective. So what do I mean by that? Well, a lot of people say, I believe that your faith should be private and no one else should know about it. Well, we're going to see from Acts chapter 4, that's not the case. Your faith is personal. That is a true statement. You should have a personal faith uh, with Jesus Christ. It's not a corporate one. It's not what you were born into. It's not what your family decides. You should have a personal, but private, you should be open to talking about it. You should uh, be willing to talk about it, to testify of what God has done in your life when God opens the door and when the opportunity is there. So it's not meant to be a secret. The Bible speaks of the opposite of it. The Great Commission is the opposite of keeping your faith private. It is to be open. Now, there's a good way to do that and a bad way to do that, and we're not going to take time to go through that. And, you know, I've heard people, I had a guy say one time to me, and this is a sign, again, that something's not right. He goes, you know, at my office, I've had that, actually a couple times, at my office, everybody hates me because I'm a Christian. When you say that, something ain't right. Because everybody didn't hate Jesus because of who he was. Now, what he stood for, some people did. But there are a lot of people that love Jesus. If everybody hates you, that means you're being obnoxious. Okay? That's what that means. All right? If you love Jesus, people might sometimes be offended, might be uncomfortable, but they won't hate you necessarily. Okay? Some, some might be radical and they, they might. But if, every, if, you were to walk in, if you work in an office of 50 people and everybody hates you, even if you weren't a Christian, they'd still hate you. Okay? So, I don't know why I keep sharing all these extra tidbits for you today, but nevertheless, Christianity is not to be private, but it is to be personal. And when I say subjective, people say it's subjective. It just depends on how you look at it. It might be true for you. Have you ever heard people, well, Christianity might be true for you, but it doesn't necessarily have to be true for me. The problem is, is Jesus made a really radical claim, and that leads into our third, our third and fourth point on here, excuse me, uh, but the fourth point which is this, is that Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, made some very exclusive claims and that Christians are ignorant to think that Jesus is the only way. That Jesus would be the only, that people are narrow and and, and you're ignorant just to think that Jesus Christ is the only way. Well, let's think about that for just a second. If Jesus made that claim that I'm the way, truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father through me, 
then we have only two choices. Either we believe it or we deny it. What about this? What if somebody said to you, you know, I just always want to be open. I don't think there's ever really one exact answer to anything. And you say, what's the capital of the United States? And you say, Washington, D.C. Well, that just seems so exclusive. I mean, there are lots of other great cities out there. To just say Washington, D.C. is the only capital of the nation, that, that just seems so narrow-minded. Unless it's true. If it's true, then you know, it, mathematics, even history. You know, if we look at history, we could see, say the same thing. You might say, you know, Elvis Presley. I had a chance to, to, to get to know Elvis's brother. And, um, you know, there was that big hoopla about Elvis is still alive and he still appears places and yada, yada. And God bless you, you still believe that. But nevertheless, you know, everybody thought, so all these people thought, all these conspiracy theories. And, and I remember uh, Rick telling me, he said, look, I was there. I saw him. He was dead. <laughs> I took his pulse. You know, he w- he's dead. And he's, he's not coming back. He said he, he died. He, took, he had an overdose, basically. Whether it was on purpose or accidental, I'm still not sure but he died. And we can say, well, you know, I just don't believe that. I think, you know, he might have died of old age. You know, I think he, I think he was probably still alive. I think it was all okay. And you can believe that, but it doesn't change the fact, does it? And a lot of times, that's what we try to do with Christianity. We try to change the facts to make it more palatable to everybody. So that it doesn't seem so narrow, but you know what the Bible says? It says, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I'm the way, truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So those are kind of hard sometimes, but those are truths and those are myths we get caught up in. Now there is a, some of you probably heard this illustration before, six blind men and an elephant. Sometimes people will philosophically use this illustration and uh, you've maybe seen this before, that one of the blind men come and, and touch the tusk and say, it's a spear. Another blind man says, no, as he touches the ear, it's a fan. Another one touches the trunk and says, this is a snake. Another one says, as he touches the leg, it's a tree. And one is up against the side of the elephant and says, it's a wall. And one in the back says, no, it's a rope as he grabs the tail. Now the thought process is this. Well, subjectively, yes, they could all have their view and they're all accurate. Or you could look at it this way. They're all wrong. But the truth of it is, what you're doing is you're, you're displaying a fallacy. And what that fallacy is, is that I know and everybody else doesn't. So when I say there are multiple ways to God, there are multiple ways to heaven, what I'm saying is I see it and, it, and all you people are wrong. That's what you're saying. And that's the whole view uh, of the six blind men in the elephant, that each one subjectively thinks they're correct. But the only person really knows is the person who, who drew this and said, well, but I can see the elephant. What you're proposing is that you're the one that can really see and everyone else is wrong. The truth of it is, as we look at this text, we'll see that there are many who had different objectives and different thoughts about what they thought Christianity should be, what they thought religion should be, what they thought truth would be. But there is only one truth at the end of the day. In Acts chapter 4, beginning with the first verse, and as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now let's do a little historical background and understanding here for just a second. Uh, We see the priest and the captain of the temple, 
And I want to show you here in just a moment a little video that kind of gives you a picture of this. But uh, the priest would be in charge of the courts, in charge of the temple, in charge of the Jewish people. And then this captain is kind of the number one law enforcement official. He's kind of the captain of the police force, okay? And so as we looked at last week, uh, a miracle has been done. There's been a lame man who's been healed. He's been lame for 40 years. And all the people are beginning to praise God and say, Jesus is alive. Jesus did this. And so they're very upset. So now they're coming to arrest him. I want you to see that on the screen for just a moment. So here's a picture of exactly where we are in Acts chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, who, by the way, the Sadducees, who were the primary influencers or primary leaders uh, of the Sanhedrin, which is the high supreme court council of the Jewish people. And the Sanhedrin, uh, Sadducees are predominantly in charge. And they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in the life after death. And so this message that Jesus has died and come back is a direct assault upon their theology, upon their belief system. And so the Bible says that the Sadducees came upon them and were greatly annoyed, as you can imagine, they would be, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming uh, that Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they had to do that because uh, it's not legal to have a court session at night, even though who was judged and taken to court at night? Jesus. So we see right here because of the law. But at this point, all the people are very aware. Uh, and the Bible says, <clears throat> so they're placed in jail. And in verse 4, but many of those who heard the word believe. Many of those who heard the gospel, the truth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that he was the Son of God, that he was the fulfillment of the prophecies. He is the Messiah. And the number of men came to be about five. So 5,000 people trust Christ, even after having them placed in prison because of the power of the gospel. You can silence the man, but you cannot silence the power of the gospel. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexandra, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, just a bit of background real quick. Uh, Annas actually isn't the legal an official high priest, because the Roman government has removed him and has placed Caiaphas, his son-in-law, in that position. That was not uncommon for the Romans or for the power that be to change the leader to get someone that they feel they felt like uh, would be easier to control and uh, more adaptive to their style. And so Annas is kind of the guy in the background who still calls a lot of the shots, but he's not legally the high priest. But nevertheless, it's of the same family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? By what power did you do this? Because here, let me give you a picture of, the, of what they're thinking. Hey, we are the church. We are the church leaders. We are the authority. God has placed us here, and what we say goes. And that's where, and, and most of us are Sadducees, at least on this uh, on this council. And so we're in charge. We don't believe in a resurrection. We don't believe in life after death. 
And so this flies right in the face of what we believe as Jews, particularly as a Sadducee. And so the Sadducee, who would be the leader of Caiaphas and Annas, uh, they said, what name? You have to have an authority. You just can't run out there and preach and speak. You have to have credentials. Someone has to have blessed you and recognized you. So who did this? Wasn't one of us. He's trying to expose them. And the Bible says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are be examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. You know, in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about if there was a miracle or a healing done, uh, in what name, if it gives glory to God, then that is a valid healing. If it's one that gives God honor and praise. And so, knowing the Scriptures, they recognize all the people are praising God. We saw that earlier, that the, the lame man last week, he left jumping and leaping and praising God. So God is receiving the glory. The people are, see, are seeing that. And he said, what name are you doing this in? We're doing it in the name of Jesus. And by the way, here's the proof. This man was lame. You know it. He's been at the temple courts. He's been here for years and years. matter of fact, he's 40 years old. He's been lame since birth. And now he walks. He said, so are you, am I here to be arrested because this man walks? Because this man has been healed? And the Bible says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected. This is prophecy from Psalms 118. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders or the leaders, which had become the cornerstone. And there is salvation, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the name. This is an exclusive claim. This is one of those exclusive claims Jesus made that's hard for us and hard for people who don't know Christ as Jesus makes this statement in John 14, 6, and then it's repeated again here by Peter. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated un and just common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. You know, they were experts in the law. They were experts in debate. And these are the highest officials. But yet, when they ask him, the disciples are answering the questions correctly. They're verifying it with a miracle, the healing that's standing right before them. And then they speak with boldness. They speak with clarity. And they're not educated. They're common. They hadn't been trained how is this? And where's this confidence coming from? And they recognized they'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus for three years. They'd been under the best discipleship program you could possibly enter into. They had heard Jesus teach and speak and pray each day. They had been with Jesus. That's where the confidence came from. The power of the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they were able to recall, as Jesus told them they would, when you find yourself before the oppressors, know that I will give you the words. The Holy Spirit will grant you favor 
and will grant you the very words to speak. And that's exactly what is happening right here. And the Bible says, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, and it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak this name to anyone again. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For they were praising God for all that happened. For man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. I said, don't you speak of this again. And they had a lot of motives. One motive was, if you go back and you read in John chapter 11, uh, you see in John chapter 11 where Caiaphas speaks and the leaders speak and they say, hey, if we don't shut this down, we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our nation. We're going to lose our position. If we don't do something about this, this is going to be a great cost for us. So they've got an ulterior motive. They know if Jesus truly was resurrected, then what does that do to the Sadducees? Their whole, uh, their whole interpretation of faith, their whole religion is proven wrong because there is a life after death, because there is a resurrection. So they have a lot to lose here and many reasons that they want Jesus the name of Jesus to be silenced. And when they were released, speaking of Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with God, saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it? And through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. Once again, we see the prophecies being shared right here that had been given earlier in Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And then skip down to verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed with one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. So what do we glean from this? What do we learn from this passage? What are the things that we can learn right here? Well, first of all, I think we can see this, that when we speak the name of Jesus, that there's going to be opposition. That's exactly what happened to them. They had opposition because it was contrary to public thought. We started this sermon saying plurality versus real Christianity. Well, what's plurality? Plurality is that there are multiple avenues. There are multiple ways people worship God. And that's true. There are multiple ways. But the question becomes, is there a right way? Were Jesus' claims true? Did they, were they, in fact, uh, the truth and were they factual? 
what Jesus said when he made his claims to be God, to be God in the flesh, to be the salvation, to be the fulfillment of the prophecies. And that's where we land. And we have to decide if that's true. And when we stand for that, there will be opposition. Number two, we saw this earlier. The messenger can be silenced, but the gospel cannot be silenced. As we read through Acts, we see where they take them and they put them in prison. And while they're in prison, we see the quote, and 5,000 <laughs> believed the truth. They believed the gospel. 5,000. We saw it in the video. 5,000 men received Christ. They accept. And so the church is growing exponentially at this point. You cannot silence the power of the gospel. The Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak when we're in those situations that He has ordained, that He has placed us in. <clears throat> Jesus promised to the disciples that, and the Holy Spirit is still alive today. We cannot change the gospel. They wanted to say, go out and don't speak of the resurrection. Don't speak of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Many people today want to change the gospel. and Just, make, just to make it a gospel, Jesus loves everybody, and that's the end of it. He loves and accepts everyone, which is true. He desires that. But we all must make the decision whether we will believe and transfer our trust to what He has done on the cross. Number five, education not, cannot replace the Holy Spirit. We can study, we can go to school, but that does not replace the power of the Holy Spirit. Just because you haven't been to seminary, just because you don't have a college degree, just because you're not studied and learned, doesn't mean the power of the Holy Spirit can't work in and through you. It can't empower you to make more and better followers of Christ, to receive, to equip, to impact, and to send. Now, I think education is incredibly important. But let me tell you, that's what, not what defines, defines us as believers in Christ. That doesn't define the quality of your faith. It may give you some more tools, but I've known lots of people who didn't finish high school whose godliness <clears throat> was significantly greater than mine. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit to meet you where you are and to change your heart. And number six, some people benefit from the suppression of truth. As we stated earlier, the Sadducees had every reason to suppress this truth. To want this man to go away. And that's true today. Sometimes it is beneficial for people to believe and to think that Jesus is not the truth. Because he makes some hard statements. He talks about, he talks about his view on marriage. And he talks about his view of salvation. He talks about the fact that uh, morality is important that we are to love one man and to love one woman. He talks about the value and the sanctity of human life. And some people don't want to hear that because it makes them uncomfortable or it goes against their lifestyle. And number seven, ultimate truth exists and we must decide how we will respond to it. There is ultimate truth. When we looked at that elephant analogy, there is an elephant there. And we can't suppress that. And we must decide, is that an elephant or is it not? Same thing is true for Christ. We must decide, are Jesus' claims true or are they not? So let's talk about, in conclusion, what are the manifestations of real Christianity? Because a lot of people take a very pluralistic view. I believe Jesus, but I also believe in others. And that's the way they believed in this day. And there's also something called syncretism where we take Christianity and we add things to it. We add Jesus plus all these works. Jesus plus all these other things. 
And the end of the day, salvation comes through Jesus Christ and believing that He died and took our place upon the cross, that our sins are covered, and that we simply receive it by grace. That's the gospel. That's the truth. And when we add to that, or we take away from that, that's not real Christianity. That's not the real gospel. So how does the real gospel impact us? What is the manifestations? What are the signs? What are the markers of real Christianity? Well, the first one is this, serving God with true consistency. You know, I meet people from time to time that will say, well, I used to be a Christian. I used to be a Christian, and it didn't work for me. So I don't do it anymore. I quit. You know, that's kind of like saying, well, I, I used to be a parent. That didn't work for me. And you may quit doing it, but it didn't change the fact if you had a child that you're still a parent. Okay? That's, still the, that's just the truth of, it, of the fact. So real Christianity, when we it doesn't mean we don't sin, doesn't mean that we don't falter, but I'll meet sometimes people say, yeah, I, I kind of quit. Well, it's, there's a doctrine called perseverance of the saints. And what that simply means is that if you truly experience the grace of God, you may stumble, you may fall, you may slip, you may slide, but you don't leave. <laughs> Does that make sense? So I know we could get into a big debate about that, about what did I do when I was five or six years old. But if you go to 1 John and study, the Bible gives us a pretty clear indication that if we know Christ, we may stray for a while, but we will come back to Him. Those who love God, those who know Him will come back to Him, or quite frankly, He'll take us. Now, it's another sermon for another day. Aren't you glad you came? I'm, hearts are encouraged today, aren't we? Read the book of 1 John and see what it says. Number two, we deliberately seek a relationship with God. The thought process of, you know, I accept Christ, I'm done. I got my fire insurance. I'm done. That's not real Christianity. Real believers in Christ continue to seek Him. You don't make a, you don't say a prayer and then you're finished and it's over. You have a heart to continue to seek God. We experience God. What do I mean by we experience God? We see Him moving. When baptism occurs, it touches our heart. When we see marriages put back together through the power of the Holy Spirit, it touches our heart. When people give testimony, when we pray and we see God working, when we see healing transpiring, we, we hear, we see, we're part, we pray. It doesn't mean that we're doing it. But we experience the, the awe and the nature of God at times. It doesn't mean that you have some yippy-skippy feeling all the time, but you're aware that God is alive and that He still moves and that He still works. We don't have time to go in this, and we'll talk about it next week, but we also see them transforming into sincere generosity. What I mean by that in the last, <clears throat> that last passage, and again, we'll talk about it more next week, we see them coming together and those who had much supplied for those who couldn't afford to eat. One of the reasons we do feed the hunger is because there are people who simply don't have enough food to eat, okay? And it's meeting basic needs in Haiti and even locally here uh, that we will give out our meals to. And so it's one of the reasons that we do that. And if we come to the place where we just hear that there are needs and, and that there are hunger, not that we can meet all of them, but we, meet, we don't have a heart to meet any of them, that says something about our faith. That says something about what's not there. And lastly, they were transforming toward community. You see them coming together, loving one another, bonding together. You see the church coming together. 
I think one of the signs that we know Christ is we want to be with His people and we want to gather in corporate worship. We recognize that the church is the bride of Christ and we want to be a part of that community. Not that it's not hard, not that it's not messy, not that it's easy, but it's a picture of what resonates within us. So my question to you today, are those manifestations true in your life? Or are you simply believing a projection of the way that you think Christ should be? The way that you think God should be? Are you simply looking at Christianity and saying, yeah, I've got the tusk right here. This is a spear. Or this tail is a rope. You're just picking pieces of Christianity and saying, I'll resonate with this, but the rest of it I'm throwing out. Hey, I want you to come back to the tenets of the faith. Do you know Jesus? Do you believe He's the Son of God? He's not a way, but He's the way. Have you transferred your trust to what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? Do you believe that you're a sinner and that you need grace and forgiveness? That you won't be good enough on your own? And you recognize that you can only be forgiven through the blood of Christ. And you receive that grace. When you do that, that's real Christianity. And the Holy Spirit will empower you and it won't make you perfect. You won't, you won't be void of mistakes, but you will be aware of the presence of God. It doesn't mean you won't slip. It doesn't mean you won't be depressed sometimes. But you will persevere. Do you know Jesus? Really? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time together this morning. Thank You that while we were still sinners, You died for us. Lord, we pray this morning that You would draw anyone who doesn't know You as their Savior to come and to know You as their Lord and Savior today. God, that we won't get caught up in the myths that were so prevalent in the day of, of the disciples as they are today, but that we will rest on the assurance and the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and that no man comes to the Father that, but through Him. We rest on that truth, we put our faith in that truth, and we thank You that it is true. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.